All right. I was wrong on the last episode. I thought we was on the last on episode 79 in our last episode of the 70s. However, we were not, but we are now on episode 79, our last episode of the 70s, and we are also reading our last chapter of this book, chapter 13, entitled The Approaching Obsolence of Housework, A Working Class Perspective. So what we're going to do is, I think it's probably going to take us two episodes to finish this chapter. We'll finish this chapter in two episodes, and then... After that, we will do a review of the entire book in the third episode, and then we will start a, a new piece of literature uh, four episodes from now. Okay, let's dive into Chapter 13, The Approaching Obsolence of Housework, A Working Class Perspective. We are on page 222 of Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. The countless chores collectively known as, quote, housework, end quote, Cooking, washing dishes, doing laundry, making beds, sweeping, shopping, etc. Apparently consumes some three to four thousand hours of the average housewife's year. As startling as this statistic may be, it does not even account for the constant and unquantifiable attention mothers must give to their children. Just as a woman's maternal duties are always taken for granted, her never-ending toil as a housewife rarely occasions expressions of appreciation within her family. Housework, after all, is virtually invisible. Quote, no one notices until it, quote, no one notices it until it isn't done. We notice the unmade bed, not the scrubbed and polished floor, end quote. Invisible, repetitive, exhausting, unproductive, uncreative. These are the adjectives which most perfectly capture the nature of housework. The new consciousness associated with the contemporary women's movement has encouraged increasing numbers of women to demand that their men provide some relief from this drudgery. Already, more men have begun to assist their partners around the house, some of them even devoting equal time to household chores. But how many of these men have liberated themselves from the assumption that housework is, quote, women's work, end quote? How many of them would not characterize their house cleaning activities as, quote, helping, end quote, their women partners? If it were at all possible simultaneously to liquidate the idea that housework is women's work and to redistribute it equally to men and women alike, would this constitute a satisfactory solution? Free from its exclusive affiliation with the female sex, would housework thereby cease to be oppressive? While most women would joyously hail the advent of the, quote, house husband, end quote, the desexualization of domestic labor would not really alter the oppressive nature of the work itself. In the final analysis, neither women nor men should waste precious hours of their lives on work that is neither stimulating, creative, nor productive. One of the most closely guarded secrets of advanced capitalist societies involves the possibility, the real possibility, of radically transforming the nature of housework. A substantial portion of the housewife's domestic tasks can actually be incorporated into the industrial economy. In other words, housework need no longer be considered necessarily and unalterably private in character. Teams of trained and well-paid workers moving from dwelling to dwelling, engineering technologically advanced cleaning machinery, could swiftly and efficiently accomplish what the present-day housewife does so arduously and primitively. Why the shroud of silence surrounding this potential of radically redefining the nature of domestic labor? 
because the capitalist economy is structurally hostile to the industrialization of housework. Socialized housework implies large government subsidies in order to guarantee accessibility to the working class family whose needs for such services is most obvious. Since little in the way of profits would result, industrialized housework, like, un, like all unprofitable enterprises, is anathema to the capitalist economy. Nonetheless, the rapid expansion of the female labor force means that more and more women are finding it increasingly difficult to excel as housewives according to the traditional standards. In other words, the industrialization of housework, along with the socialization of housework, is becoming an objective social need. Housework is individual women's private responsibility and as female labor performed under primitive technical conditions may finally be approaching historical obsolete. Although housework as we know it today may eventually become a bygone relic of history, prevailing social attitudes continue to associate the eternal female condition with images of brooms and dustpans, mops and pails, aprons and stoves, pots and pans. And it is true that women's work from one historical era to another, has been associated in general with the homestead. Yet female domestic labor has not always been what it is today. For like all social phenomena, housework is a fluid product of human history. As economic systems have arisen and faded away, the scope and quality of housework have undergone radical transformations. As Frederick Engels argued in his classic work on the origin of the family, private property and the state, Sexual inequality as we know it today did not exist before the advent of private property. During early eras of human history, the sexual division of labor within the system of economic production was complementary as opposed to hierarchical. In societies where men may have been responsible for hunting wild animals and women, in turn, for gathering wild vegetables and fruits, both sexes performed economic tasks that were equally essential to their community survival. Because the community, during those eras, was essentially an extended family, women's central role in domestic affairs meant that they were accordingly valued and respected as productive members of the community. The centrality of women's domestic tasks in pre-capitalist cultures was dramatized by a personal experience during a jeep trip I took in 1973 across the Maasai Plains. On an isolated dirt road in Tanzania, I noticed six Maasai women enigmatically balancing an enormous board on their heads. As my Tanzanian friends explained, these women were probably transporting a house roof to a new village, which they were in the process of constructing. Among the Maasai, as I learned, women are responsible for all domestic activities, thus also for the construction of their nomadic people's frequently relocated houses. Housework, as far as Maasai women are concerned, entails not only cooking, cleaning, child-rearing, sewing, etc., but house-building as well. As important as their men's cattle-raising duties may be, the women's, quote, housework, end quote, is no less productive and no less essential than the economic contributions of Maasai men. Within the pre-capitalist nomadic economy of the Maasai, women's domestic labor is as essential to the ceremony, excuse me, to the economy as the cattle raising jobs performed by the, their men. As producers, they enjoy a correspondingly important social status. In advanced capitalist societies, on the other hand, the service-oriented domestic labor of housewives, who can seldom produce tangible evidence of their work, 
diminishes the social status of women in general. When all is said and done, the housewife, according to bourgeois ideology, is, quite simply, her husband's lifelong servant. The source of the bourgeois notion of woman as man's eternal servant is itself a revealing story. Within the relatively short history of the United States, the, quote, housewife, end quote, as a finished historical product is just a little more than a century old. Housework during the colonial era was entirely different from the daily work routine of the housewife in the United States today. Quote, a woman's work began at sunup and continued by firelight as long as she could hold her eyes open. For two centuries, almost everything that the family used or ate was produced at home under her direction. She spun and dyed the yarn that she wove into cloth and cut and hand-stitched into garments. She grew much of the food her family ate and preserved enough to last the winter months. She made butter, cheese, bread, candles, and soap and knitted her family's stockings. End quote. In the agrarian economy of pre-industrial North America, a woman performing her household chores was thus a spinner, weaver, and seamstress, as well as a baker, butter churner, candle maker, and soap maker, and etc., etc., etc. As a matter of fact, quote, the pressures of home production left very little time for the tasks that we would recognize today as housework. By all accounts, pre-industrial revolution women were sloppy housekeepers by today's standards. Instead of the daily cleaning or the weekly cleaning, there was the spring cleaning. Meals were simple and repetitive. Clothes were changed infrequently, and the household wash was allowed to accumulate, and the washing done once a month or in some households, once in three months. And, of course, since each wash required the carting and heating of many buckets of water, higher standards of cleanliness were easily discouraged, end quote. Colonial women were not, quote, house cleaners, end quote, or, quote, housekeepers, end quote, but rather full-fledged and accomplished workers within the home-based economy. Not only did they manufacture most of the products required by their families, they were also the guardians of their families' and their communities' health. Quote, it was the colonial women's responsibility to gather and dry wild herbs used as medicines. She also served as doctor, nurse, and midwife within her own family and in the community. End quote. Included in the United States Practical Receipt Book, a popular colonial recipe book, are recipes for foods as well as for household chemicals and medicines. To cure ringworm, for example, quote, obtain some blood root, slice it in vinegar, and afterwards wash the place affected with the liquid. End quote. The economic importance of women's domestic functions in colonial America was complemented by their visible roles in economic activity outside the home. It was entirely acceptable, for example, for a woman to become a tavern keeper. Quote, women also ran sawmills and gristmills, cane chairs and built furniture, operated slaughterhouses, printed cotton and other cloth, made lace and owned and ran dry goods and clothing stores. They worked in tobacco shops, drug shops, where they sold concoctions they made themselves, and general stores that sold everything from pens to meat scales. Women ground eyeglasses, made netting and rope, cut and stitched leather goods, made cards for wool carding, and even were house painters. Often, they were the town undertakers. End quote. 
The post-revolutionary surge of industrialization resulted in a proliferation of factories in the northeastern section of the new country. New England's textile mills were the factory system's successful pioneers. Since spinning and weaving were traditional female domestic occupations, women were the first workers recruited by the mill owners to operate the new power looms. Considering the subsequent exclusion of women from industrial production in general, it is one of the great ironies of this country's economic history that the first industrial workers were women. As industrialization advanced, shifting economic production from the home to the factory, the importance of women's domestic work suffered a systematic erosion. Women were the losers in a double sense. As their traditional jobs were usurped by the bargaining factories, the entire economy moved away from the home, leaving many women largely bereft of the significant economic roles. By the middle of the 19th century, the factory provided textiles, candles, and soap. Even butter, bread, and other food products began to be mass-produced. Quote, by the end of the century, hardly anyone made their own starch or boiled their own laundry in a kettle. In the cities, women bought their bread and at least their underwear ready-made, sent their children out to school and probably some clothes out to be laundered, and were debating the merits of canned foods, the flow of industry. The flow of industry had passed on and had left idle the loom in the attic in the soap kettle in the shed, end quote. I haven't really, I hadn't taken any time to reflect on the th the passages we have been reading because I was uh, really learning, taking in a lot of this information and also of some of these things throughout these chapters because uh, each chapter is about a specific, well, because some of the chapters have been about specific moments and specific movements uh, that are part of the overall liberation, uh, liberation of women, uh, you know, I'm sort of trying to articulate my own perspective. I'm not sure that this is how the author uh, would frame it. But since, for me, since some of these, each one of these chapters sort of takes a, a moment or a movement and fits it into the overall liberation of women in the society of the United States of America. And this specific chapter uh, has some of a review of a few things that were touched on at the beginning of this book when Angela Davis had a specific chapter that was only about uh, women pre the American Revolution. And so each each one of these chapters have sort of sometime encapsulated 100 years or 75 years, 50 years. And some of the chapters that have followed or been before have encapsulated those same years. So we have sort of an overlapping of time in some of these chapters. Uh, and it still is a progressive move forward throughout history. And so I was getting a lot of review and it was, as I was reading through this, it was making me think of a lot of the things that we have read up to this point. And it was making me realize that I think maybe the the biggest takeaway or one of the biggest takeaways I also have from this, from reading this is the, the, uh, the, the, how, how, uh, um, it's a lot of stuff going on outside, so I'm fucking up my words, my fault, but sort of the alteration of narratives, I guess is what I'm trying to, uh, 
put into words in some way how when you look at how the integral part that women played in the society and in the in the in the home and in the community and in the family uh, pre-industrialization pre-american revolution pre capitalism exploding in the way that it did even pre-slavery becoming some of uh or ballooning to the way that it ballooned to, you see how much more important and how much more of an emphasis was uh, just put on being playing a role in the society, not necessarily having connotations uh, attached to what role that you play in the society because of the importance of playing a role, because of the importance of collectivism. You know, it's individualism that puts you in a position where you feel as if one person's role is more important or is higher than someone else's role. Uh, but in collectivism, you know, the concept is that you can't play your role to the fullest extent unless somebody is playing their role to the fullest extent. And so in that case, there can be no one person that is more important because uh, you, you both need each other to succeed. It's a, a, a symbiotic relationship. And at least for specific women I guess we have to put it to put it that way as well because one of the things that has been pointed out in this book is that this was not the case for all women depending on what their race and what their class was but for specific women there was a, a, a higher respect for the part that they played in the collective and that's not really something that you hear about a lot uh, or even see portrayed a lot and I think that's one of the, this also makes me think of a book I read uh, called uh, In Defense of Looting. And one of the things that they were trying to emphasize in the book of In Defense of Looting was trying to highlight that it, black people were not always just victim and victimized, that they fought back, that they struggled back, that uh, they, that it it's also does a disservice to teach a history of victimization of a people who have not just been victims. They've struggled and fought against these things. And that if the, the truth was told instead of a narrative, it would show how strong black people are instead of opposed to trying to make it seem how weak they have had, how weak they became or how weak they, uh, were to the, the power structures of racism and things of that nature. And so I think one of the other things I've taken away from reading this book is the fact that, you know, even though women have been marginalized and have been subjugated and exploited and oppressed, that that is not where the story begins at, that that's not the, the, the full narrative or the full scope is that this was something that was done to behoove a class of people, that it was people who were making money, you know, and uh, and capitalism and class, you know, there were other things beneath the surface that led to the devaluation of women in the American society, that it was people who uh, profited off the devaluation of women in the American society, uh, that it was other, uh, other systematic and systemic issues like racism and capitalism and classism and elitism and imperialism that were at play that, uh, that, worsened the devaluation of, of women in this society. So I hope I hope I got that out after a while. I sort of stumbled over for a little bit. Okay. As industrial capitalism approached consolidation, the cleavage between the new economic sphere and the old home economy became ever more rigorous. The physical relocation of economic production caused by the spread of the factory system was undoubtedly a drastic transformation. 
But even more radical was the generalized revaluation of production necessitated by the new economic system. While home manufactured goods were valuable primarily because they fulfilled basic family needs, the importance of factory-produced commodities residing overwhelmingly in their exchange value and their ability to fulfill employers' demands for profit. This revaluation of economic production revealed, beyond the physical separation of home and factory, a fundamental structural separation between the domestic home economy and the profit-oriented economy of capitalism. Since housework does not generate profit, domestic labor was naturally defined as an inferior form of work as compared to capitalist wage labor. An important ideological byproduct of this radical economic transformation was the birth of the, quote, housewife, end quote. Women began to be ideologically redefined as the guardians of a devalued domestic life. As ideology, however, this redefinition of women's place was boldly contradicted by the vast numbers of immigrant women flooding the ranks of the working class in the Northeast. These white immigrant women were wage earners first and only secondarily housewives. And there were other women, millions of women, who toiled away from home as the unwilling producers of the slave economy in the South. The reality of women's place in 19th century U.S. society involved white women whose days were spent operating factory machines for wages that were a pittance, as surely as it involved black women who labored under the coercion of slavery. The, quote, housewife, end quote, reflected a partial reality, for she was really a symbol of the economic prosperity enjoyed by the emerging middle classes. And then I want to stop and say something about that passage that's right there as well, too. Uh, to me, that didn't, and I, didn't, I, I wasn't, of course, I couldn't put it as, uh, poetically, as Angela Davis uh, does the, here, but that encapsulates so much of, I think, what is I didn't understand or, or what I didn't know is the reality of women's place in 19th century U.S. society involved white women whose days were spent operating factory machines for wages that were a pittance, as surely as it involved black women who labored under coercion of slavery. The, quote, housewife, end quote, reflected a partial reality, for she was really a symbol of the economic prosperity enjoyed by the emerging middle classes. Uh, there's so much that's in that passage. And this book has sort of told those three spe specific perspectives from a, a magnificent point of view, the perspective of how the devaluation of women, the exploitation, the oppression of women, and a bunch of these other negative aspects of our society, how they affected working class women that were primarily in the North, immigrant working class women that were primarily in the North, uh, that would be, that would, that would not have the opportunity to rise from being in that status that, yeah, they weren't black. So that meant that they weren't black women. They weren't at the, at the very bottom of the, uh, pyramid in American society when it comes to, to uh, communities, but they also weren't uh, at the top and they had no chance to rise through there. So they had a very, uh, they had very specific things that they dealt with that they were, that, that were their realities. And you see Angela Davis expound upon those throughout the book. And, and one of the things you see is you 
she points out is how some of the racism of those working class immigrant uh, women, white women, working class white women uh, that, that maybe even if they weren't women, immigrant, how the racism that they held on to or the racist ideology that they had led to them uh, recreating the same type of subjugation and the same type of ostracization that they were dealing with, the same type of, of oppression that they were dealing with from white men and from middle class white women uh, onto black women and onto black people. And them doing that helped to continue them dealing with the realities that they had to deal with as uh, working class white women that had certain things that was uh, that had certain exploitations that were being done to them. And then Angela Davis does the job of painting the uh, perspective of, uh, of black women, black women that were uh, in the North, in the Northeast, the, uh, the perspective of black women uh, who were slaves and who had uh, uh, came from uh, descendants of slaves. And she goes through these, this, the time periods of 18th, 19th, 20th century and painting what their realities were like and how even for them sometimes the issue of classism came into play and how that held them back because of the fact that uh, within the classism they were exhibiting, they were perpetuating some of the type of racist ideologies that existed uh, or how they were being held back because of misogynistic uh, ideals that existed or because of uh, male supremacist ideas that existed. Uh, and then Angela Davis also does the job of painting what it was like for the, the housewife and how or the middle class white women who did not have the oppressions or exploitations of being working class and having to deal with uh, th those realities that did not have the uh, burden to having to deal with racism and those realities or slavery and those realities, but began to have to deal with the negative aspects that came with this this categorizing as being a housewife and this devaluing what it what it is that they provided to the home and the removal of uh, of their importance uh, within the society as far as on a uh, on a surface level type of aspect because their their importance was not really removed it was just the the smoke and mirror effects that uh, sort of takes place with with politics and and capitalism. So again, I hope I'm. Hope I'm articulating these things the right way. Although the, quote, housewife, end quote, was rooted in the social conditions of the bourgeois and the middle classes, 19th century ideology established the housewife and the mother as universal models of womanhood. Since popular propaganda represented the vocation of all women as a function of their roles in the home, women compelled to work for wages came to be treated as alien visitors within the masculine world of the public economy. Having stepped outside their, quote, natural sphere, end quote, women were not to be treated as full-fledged wage workers. The price they paid involved long hours, substandard working conditions, and grossly inadequate wages. Their exploitation was even more intense than the exploitation suffered by their male counterparts. Needless to say, sexism emerged as a source of outrageous super profits for the capitalists. The structural separation of the public economy of capitalism and the private economy of the home has been continually reinforced by the obstinate primitiveness of household labor. Despite the proliferation of gadgets for the home, domestic work has remained qualitatively unaffected by the technological advances brought on by industrial capitalism. Housework still consumes thousands of hours of the average housewife's year. In 1903, 
Charlotte Perkins Gilman proposed a definition of domestic labor which reflected the upheavals which had changed the structure and content of housework in the United States. Quote, the phrase domestic work does not apply to a special kind of work, but to a certain grade of work, a state of development through which all kinds pass. All industries were once, quote, domestic, end quote, that is, were performed at home and in the interest of the family. All industries have since that remote period risen to higher states, except one or two which have never left the primal stage, end quote. Quote, the home, end quote, Gilman maintains, has not developed in proportion to other institutions. The home economy reveals, quote, the maintenance of primitive industries in a modern industrial community and the confinement of women to these industries and their limited area of expression, end quote. Housework, Gilman insists, vitiates women's humanity. Quote, she is feminine but more than enough as man is masculine more than enough. But she is not human as he is human. The house life does not bring out humanness for all the distinctive lines of human progress lie outside, end quote. The truth of Gilman's statement is corroborated by the historical experience of black women in the United States. Throughout this country's history, the majority of black women have worked outside their homes. During slavery, women toiled alongside their men in the cotton and tobacco fields, and when industry moved into the South, they could be seen in tobacco factories, sugar refineries, and even in lumber mills and on crews pounding steel for the railroads. In labor, slave women were the equals of their men. Because they suffered a grueling sexual equality at work, they enjoyed a greater sexual equality at home in the slave quarters than did their white sisters, who were, quote, housewives, end quote. As a direct consequence of their outside work, as, quote, free, end quote, women no less than the slaves, housework has never been the central focus of black women's lives. They have largely escaped the psychological damage industrial capitalism inflicted on white middle class housewives whose alleged virtues were feminine weakness and wifely submissiveness. Black women could hardly strive for weakness. They had to become strong, for their families and their communities needed their strength to survive. Evidence of the accumulated strengths black women have forced through work, work and more work can be discovered in the contributions of the many outstanding female leaders who have emerged within the black community. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Ida Wells, and Rosa Parks are not exceptional black women as much as they are epitomes of black womanhood. Black women, however, have paid a heavy price for the strengths they have acquired and the relative independence they have enjoyed. While they have seldom been, quote, just housewives, end quote, they have always done their housework. They have thus carried the double burden of wage labor and housework, a double burden which always demands that working women possess the per persevering powers of Cepheus. As W.E.B. Du Bois observed in 1920, quote, some few women are born free and some amid insult and scarlet letters achieve freedom. But our women in black have freedom thrust contemptuously upon them. With that freedom, they are buying an untrammeled independence and there is the price they pay for it. It will in the end be worth every taunt and groan, end quote. Like their men, black women have worked until they could work no more. Like their men, they have assumed the responsibilities of family providers. The unorthodox feminine qualities of assertiveness and self-reliance, for which black women have been frequently praised but more often rebuked, are reflections of their labor and their struggles outside the home. 
But like their white sisters called, quote, housewives, end quote, they have cooked and cleaned and have nurtured and reared untold numbers of children. But unlike the housewives, who have learned to lean on their husbands for economic security, black wives and mothers, usually workers as well, have rarely been offered the time and energy to become experts at domesticity. Like their white working class sisters, who also carry the double burden of working for a living and servicing husbands and children, black women have, need, have needed relief from this oppressive predicament for a long, long time. For black women today and for all their working class sisters, the notion that the burden of housework and childcare can be shifted from their shoulders to the society contains one of the radical secrets of women's liberation. Childcare should be socialized. Meal preparation should be socialized. Housework should be industrial. All right. Oh, turn the mic up some. Oh, no, it's not the mic that need to get turned up. It's the headphones. All right. We're going to end this episode here. We're at a little bit over 30 minutes, and we will return tomorrow with another episode of Rafa Reading Daily, and we will finish up reading Angela Y. Davis's Women Racing Class. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube. And remember, we put these episodes of Rock for Reading daily out on a regular basis to provide people with the opportunity to begin or further their struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. We outside. <laughs>